If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. I turn to the gospel selection in the lectionary and it's the story of Jesus calling the Syrophoenician woman a dog. And I thought, well, given recent events and people calling people dogs, I, I don't think I wanna start there. So I looked at the Isaiah passage and there's this beautiful, beautiful poem. Those of you that like to uh, follow along, it's Isaiah, the 35th chapter, beginning at verse four, very short. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God, he will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense, he will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Here ends this word inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. When I said last Sunday, it's good to be home and back in this pulpit, I really meant it. I know that's the kind of thing preachers are supposed to say, especially old ones who have been gone all summer. But I was telling you the truth. When I decided to start this new chapter in my life, retiring from full-time teaching and taking the summers off from church, it was to spend more time with Sean, to travel, to write, and to be with our three granddaughters. It wasn't less work I was interested in, it was in recognition of an irrefutable truth, namely, life doesn't get any longer. So do what you can now to be happy and to be what you are called to be for those around you. Besides, I put Lori in charge for three months and how did that turn out? Pretty good, pretty good. It is really a blessing for me to leave a place like this and then come back to find it stronger than when I left. Sean and I got to travel to Iceland, which we have always wanted to do and we found it breathtaking. With our dear friends Sandy and Nick de Cristofero, we rented a car and we drove over around the southern coast of the island, 
gawking at waterfalls that sprang forth from the side of misty mountains like ribbons of wonder. We saw jagged black lava fields covered in this lichen that looked like velour, stretching as far as the eye could see, brooded over by snow-capped glaciers and icebergs marching toward the sea. And besides this primitive wonder with 30 active volcanoes, Sean really liked that, Iceland has some of the best and most expensive fish I've ever eaten. <laughs> the pulpit series was great, and I must say, keep your eye on, on Bailey Perkins. Hmm, that young woman may be president someday. Think of what an improvement. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't help but remember Bailey as a freshman in my public speaking class telling me, Dr. Myers, I'm afraid to get up in front of the class and speak. I said, you can do it. You've got a story to tell. And look at her now. And then, of course, the vigils all summer for our immigrant sisters and brothers, now times two, are such a gift in this moment when we think there's nothing we can do to change the disastrous course we're on, there's always something we can do. We just can't depend on others to do it for us. In July, the entire Myers clan, 26 of us gathered in Green Mountain Falls and hung out for a week on the side of a mountain. My mom, who is 88, about to turn 89, was the oldest, the matriarch. Our newest granddaughter, whose name is Eleonora Louise Magnolia Ewald, is the youngest, whose middle name is my mother's middle name, sitting there on her great-great-grandmother's lap, while the cousins ran laughing and playing in the cool of a Colorado evening. It doesn't get any better than that. Acting on orders from Lori and with Sean's undying patience, I have been pecking away all summer at a book I am writing about God. I thought I'd pick a small subject. <laughs> and let me be clear, only a fool writes a book about God. The oldest and best advice for authors you know this is to write about something you know. Well, guess what? That's why nobody writes books about God at least books that anyone wants to read. They all sort of collapse under the weight of their own arguments, either for or exist against the existence of God. So I'm trying to do something different and move our language in church away from the old man in the sky whom we fear and petition for favors and toward a more spiritual, less personal understanding of divinity. This is really just 65,000 words about the luminous web. It's also been a strange and a stressful summer if you've chosen to watch the news. I said in the pastoral prayer last Sunday that it was the summer of our discontent. For me, the full extent of the darkness that has descended upon us came clear when we started separating children from their parents at the border and the president said in that sort of breathy voice of his that feigns sincerity but only reveals pathology, You've got to separate the children. That's when I realized we'd arrived at a moment of truth. If there is still anything we can all agree on is true, namely that liberals and conservatives could all unite around this one fact, certainly all religious folk, you never, ever, ever separate children from their parents. 
unless the parents are a danger to those children. And to all my evangelical friends out there who really, really, really love Jesus and say we need more Bible, let's be clear. The scriptures implore us to care for orphans and widows, not to create orphans and widows. And in case you're thinking right now, uh-oh, Robin's about to get all wound up and start telling us what we already know, that we're on the verge of losing our democracy, and in the days to come we face a constitutional crisis that will determine whether anyone is really above the law. I know you already know this. I also know you don't need me to run down a list of dangers from the pulpit and make you feel worse than some of us already feel, so I won't. What I will do, however, is read you a poem from Isaiah that's strangely out of place and might be exactly what we need to hear this morning. When I say out of place, I mean that scholars are sort of confused about why this poem just pops up here in the 35th chapter of what's called First Isaiah. Without getting too technical, Isaiah is often described as broken into three parts, first, second, and third Isaiah, and those are three periods of time as well. And in First Isaiah, the text is dark and foreboding because Israel is in exile and surrounded by enemies. In fact, in the chapter just before our text this morning, there is a dark poem, as ominous as anything you will read. Listen. The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. In other words, God is going to trash Edom, which, by the way, is named after Esau, the hairy brother of Jacob, who married a Canaanite woman. That was his big mistake, and became the father of the Edomites, the sworn enemies of the Israelites. And in this poem, God is just going to torch Edom, firebomb it like it was Dresden, God is going to wipe them out and infest their fields with thorns and thistles and otherwise prove that Yahweh is not to be messed with when it comes to protecting his chosen people. Then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this beautiful poem just pops up. It's like a pop-up poem. It's addressed to no one in particular, kind of like Mary's Magnificat. It's more like a song than a poem, one that just bursts forth like a solitary bird singing in the stillness that follows a violent thunderstorm. It is preceded by this command from God, say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Listen, be strong, do not fear. That might be exactly the word we need to hear this morning. In fact, the Hebrew phrase that translates those who are of a fearful heart more literally means one whose hearts are racing. Isaiah calls us to preach this morning to people whose hearts are racing. As if the crisis through which we are passing has given us all AFib. As if adrenaline has dumped into the bloodstream of the body politic and our hearts are racing. This poem should not even be here. It's out of place. And scholars are mystified and wonder if maybe it got sort of cut and pasted here 
into first Isaiah rather than later when the exile has ended and things are much better. Listen, here is your God who will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. I like that. And the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes because now there's water. So right in the middle of all this desolation and hopelessness, this song of hope just pops up. Things are bad now, but they won't always be because God is coming with vengeance to save us. Now, if you don't like that word vengeance, well, join the club. It sounds like a God of wrath, but the Hebrew words here refer to retribution by a legitimate authority. Retribution that brings, listen, liberation to the oppressed. Freedom from a situation of need and the restoration of justice. Now, that kind of vengeance we could use. This is not punishment Isaiah is talking about, it's restorative justice Isaiah is talking about, where finally the violence comes to an end and there is enough for everyone. Since this is not the path we are currently on, maybe we should reconsider this whole idea that God's going to save us, because I don't really think that's how it works. I think we will save ourselves by acting for justice, by restoring the most basic virtues of civility and honesty and integrity, and by making sure there really is enough for everyone. By the way, did you know there is enough for everyone? The model of God that has dominated the church for centuries is this supernatural deity that comes to rescue us, that does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I don't believe in divine rescues. After the Holocaust, I don't, I don't know how anyone can believe that. I believe we do the work inspired by God. We organize and advocate and live lives of justice and sacrifice and humility, and then the Spirit of God completes the work in a world where everything really is connected to everything else, and that, in a nutshell, is the thesis of my book. We are not helpless. We made this mess, and we will have to get ourselves out of it. And by the way, I hear a lot of talk about personal responsibility from my conservative friends, but at the same time, a lot about how God has everything planned out and there's nothing we can do about anything. Well, which is it? Let's do this. Let's imagine some of the good things that are happening right now and see if we can write our own song of hope. Did you know that in the wasteland that many of our urban centers have become, there are now urban gardens springing up? Places that were once littered with broken glass and crack vials are now community gardens with rows and rows of vegetables. Can you see this now in your mind? There are young children there and grandmothers together tending them. They're pulling weeds together. Close your eyes and think of something beautiful that happened to you this week. 
Maybe it was just a small, thoughtful gesture, a door held open, a smile and a word of reassurance, perhaps a blessing from a homeless person who thanked you for even noticing that he exists. Maybe you looked at your spouse and thought to yourself, she puts up with me, <laughs> or he does not throw me out. What is this thing called love that is so tenacious, and why does love save us when nothing else can? Well, think about the funerals for John McCain and Aretha Franklin. Just when we needed a reminder of what virtue is, what sacrifice is, what it means to serve, whether that's in the military or in the Senate or by singing at the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. We remember, we remember, we remember at just the right moment. Is that timing coincidental? Or is that the work of the luminous web? Why is it, I wonder, that every time I've ever broken down on the side of the road or run out of gas or need some kind of help, it has always been, always been, a person of color who stopped to help me? It's true. You know why? They get it. They've been there. And they're not in such a hurry to make more money, they don't have time to stop and help. Think about the fact that right in the middle of this lawlessness and lunacy, Georgia might elect its first Afri African-American man as governor and Massachusetts its first African-American woman as senator. What? That's Tip O'Neill's old seat. It is possible that two members of this church might become the next governor and first lady of the state of Oklahoma. It's possible. And we can increase the possibility by working our tails off and by being generous and by letting our whole way of being in the world constitute our prayers for a better future. There is decency and virtue and compassion and honesty all around us. We just don't see it because we've decided to live lives of entertainment and scandal. We think that's more interesting. We have this tabloid fascination with firing people or voting them off the island. We should be inviting more of them to the table. I mean, or think about it this way. The man who used to say, you're fired, is going to get fired. Don't tell me there's no God. <laughs> so let's go. Let's go in search of our souls and the soul of this country we love. It's still there, it's just kind of gotten buried under our addiction for illusion. We've been too busy pursuing idols instead of pursuing wisdom. And Isaiah dares to speak a word of hope to us this morning that's out of place, a word that refuses to wait until things improve. By the way, that's not a bad model for the church, speaking a word now whose hopefulness is out of place because things are gonna get worse, people, before they get better. And we deserve it when people say, so what are you people, crazy? Are you crazy? Yes, we are crazy, like Jesus was crazy. And like many of you, I read the anonymous op-ed from a senior official inside the White House, telling us with extraordinary clarity and very fine prose, I might add, <laughs> that people close to the president are doing the best they can to control the damage of someone who, as the writer put it, is not moored to any discernible first principles. 
Wow. And who seems more and more mentally unhinged as his day of reckoning approaches. But it's what the writer said next that interested me most. Listen, quote, the bigger concern is not what Mr. Trump has done to the presidency, but rather what, as a nation, we have allowed him to do to us. We have sunk low with him and allowed our discourse to be stripped of civility. Whose fault is that? That is our fault. And this is our day of reckoning. So if I may turn Kennedy's famous aphorism around, ask not what will happen to Donald Trump, ask what has happened to us and what you plan to do about it. The greatest resistance we could make to this dark moment would be to resist our own worst impulses. It would be the most amazing thing if, if Americans could find it in their hearts to just walk away from this, to, to refuse to comply, to be in non-compliance, to go AWOL from the cancer that social media has become, to refuse to respond in kind to meanness, childishness, and narcissism, and then to resist in the most meaningful way of all, which is to show up in mass at a place that, as it turns out, is more powerful than we ever realized. It's called a polling place, a voting booth. Everyone should go there at least once. It really matters. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann used to say that these sudden outbursts of hope, like the one in Isaiah 35, are not backed up by the evidence. He calls them, and I love this phrase, doxologies against the data. That's not a bad name for what we should all be doing, singing doxologies against the data. Our future depends on our ability to speak a word now that is out of place, to sing our songs before the morning comes. Sing them in the darkness and then see who shows up to stand with us and sing along. I don't know about you, I think I can hear it. I hear the sound of something. Maybe it's a train coming. Maybe it's the peace train, peace train, come save this country. It may be a long way off, but you can hear a train coming from a long, long way off. And here's what we should do. We should sing until it gets here. And then we should get on board. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.